You can't just wave a magic wand and say, all right, well, if we get technological unemployment, we'll introduce universal basic income and that will solve everything. That's magical thinking. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 325. Today is Sunday, the 28th of April, 2019. And this interview is with Callum Chase. Callum is a well-regarded author and speaker focused on artificial intelligence. He's the co-founder of the Economic Singularity Club, a futurist think tank. His books include Surviving AI, The Economic Singularity, and Pandora's Brain. His latest book, Stories from 2045, is a collection of short stories exploring through fiction how AI and new tech will impact our world. In this conversation, we discuss the challenges, opportunities, and perils of AI, the UBI option, and much more, a stimulating chat about the future. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Callum Chase, welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Great to have you on the show. You and I met thanks to a chum, mutual friend, and then I uh, got to hear you speak. You're a author of many books, very much focused around the future and new tech, AI, and uh, really wanted to get on, get a chance to dig in on a few of your topics. How do you like to introduce yourself, Callum? Well, hello. Uh, normally, I say I am a writer and speaker about the future of AI. So I'm I'm not a technically qualified person. I'm not a programmer. I'm not an AI researcher. Uh, but I have spent a fairly long lifetime thinking about what AI will do to us individually and as societies. I first wrote about the possibility of automation causing uh, technological unemployment in 1980. So a writer and speaker about AI. What's interesting about your corpus of work is that you have, it seems to me, navigated between fictional versions of the future, if you will, and non-fiction versions. Tell me how you choose both of those and what are you trying to do when you move from fiction to non-fiction and vice versa? Mm. Well, the first point I'd make is that non-fiction is a hell of a lot easier. <laughs> I um, have been interested in what AI would do to us, as I say, for a very long time. And um, in 1999, I read a book, which a lot of your listeners will have heard of, uh, Ray Kurtz files, Are We Spiritual Machines? He's mm. since written uh, The Singularity is Near in 2005. And when I read Are We Spiritual Machines, it was quite a, uh, an eye-opener because I'd always thought that we would one day create machines as clever as we are, but I always thought it would be hundreds or more likely thousands of years in the future. And what Kurzweil made me realize was that it was possible it would arrive in my lifetime or maybe my children's lifetime. And I thought that was a really remarkable thing. And I thought it was also remarkable how few people realize this or we're thinking about it so i thought this idea needs to be spread how do you spread an idea well you make a movie obviously <laughs> how do you make a movie if you're just some guy uh, not in hollywood you write a novel and then hollywood picks it up makes it into a movie so i wrote a novel about the arrival of the first super intelligence on on earth and it was a pretty terrible book uh, i wrote it in 2000 i was working at the time so i didn't have much time for it and um 
not long after that, I met my current and permanent uh, <laughs> girlfriend. And uh, <laughs> I gave it to her to read. And she said that uh, she hadn't got around to it. I'd nudged her a couple of times in the following years, and she said she hadn't read it. I discovered seven years later that she had read it and thought it was so terrible she couldn't bear to tell me what it was, um, which is fair <laughs> enough. Right. Um, I was still working until 2011. I retired in 2011. And because I don't play golf, I needed something else to do, and I thought I'd pursue my hobby in, uh, in respect of AI. And one of the things I did was to rewrite the novel, and it was much less terrible having rewritten it, but it was still pretty bad. And one of the problems with it was that it was a non-fiction book and a, and a novel wrapped around each other. Mm. And various friends who read the first version, I mean, the thing about novels is there's always a first draft, and the technical term for the first draft is the shit draft. But you typically don't show it to anybody, but if you are brave enough to or foolish enough to, you'll get lots of interesting comments. And the comments that kept coming back to me were, you know, take the non-fiction book out of the novel. And I really didn't want to do that because I wanted the whole point of the exercise was to get the ideas across. But eventually, um, Julia came up with a very good way of getting me to do that. So I did. Uh, and I was left with a novel, which actually isn't terrible, I think. Uh, and it's called Pandora's Brain. And that was published in, I think, 2014, maybe 2013. Um, and then um, people said, well, you know, that's great. Now, why don't you publish the nonfiction book, which you took out? So I did. Um, and that was surviving ai and that i think was published in 2014 and then i went on to publish a thing called the economic singularity which is about the future of, of jobs and the possibility of future joblessness um since then i've produced another book called the called artificial intelligence and the two singularities that's a combination of the previous two fiction books and finally, just recently, a book called Stories from 2045, which is a collection of short stories written by me and a bunch of other people. We might come back to that. Um, so navigating between the two, I, I sort of got into this through novels but and discovered that writing nonfiction is really much more what my, where my skill set lies. However, I also have the first draft of the sequel to Pandora's Brain, which is quite possibly even worse than the first draft of Pandora's Brain was. Um, but I've recently come across a chap who says he can cure me uh, and turn me into a fiction writer. So I'm willing to go on that journey with him. So maybe the sequel to Pandora's Brain will appear at some point. Pandora's Brain 2. So that's interesting. And I was listening to a podcast recently and they were talking about the, the, the difference between fact and truth. And in that fiction is sometimes considered to be the opposite of fact it doesn't mean it doesn't have truth in it. Yeah, that, that sounds too clever for me. Uh, <laughs> fiction can be very enlightening and it can uh, give us great insights. And I think you know, it's a slight danger of the lifestyle that I lead and quite possibly the one you do too, is that we read lots of nonfiction because you kind of have to to keep up with the debate and that doesn't leave much time for fiction. And that's a shame. And whenever I read fiction... I find it takes me to places that nonfiction can't, and it tell, shows me things, tells me things that nonfiction can't. So they're both really important. And of course, the golden age of television that we're living through is the enemy of reading. And I have to keep telling myself, do not watch Suicide Squad. Do not watch the latest Avengers movie, because I love those things. They're, they're, they're my sort of guilty 
guilty uh, secret pleasures. Well, at the same uh, time, you know, you, when you when you watch those, you you are staying up to date with, you know, contemporary culture, in some way. Yeah, I suppose so. But there are there are aspects of contemporary culture which I think you wouldn't miss much if you didn't keep up with. It's a bit like reading the Daily Mail. Well, I, I highly agree with you in the idea. I, I mean, my background is literary, and um, I like to insert every once in a while a fiction book. And you're right, it does um, open up the chakras. I just read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe again, just for fun. So, um, Callum, you, you've written some seven, six, seven, eight uh, books and fiction and non-fiction but you also did this transition and, and presumably that's what led to this prolific uh, outpouring every year for the last uh, five or so years uh, from a corporate life to being an author and a speaker talk us through that transition and how you've come into your new 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 space yeah well the pivotal moment was when i retired in 2011 so i had I had kind of three careers before that. Um, I was in media and marketing, BBC and BP, uh, between 1981 and 1988. And then I did an MBA and went into consulting and did that from 89 to 2005. And then I hopped over the fence and went onto the client side and ran, a, ran and helped to run a series of small entrepreneurial businesses. Um, and then, as I say, retired in 2011. And that was the pivotal moment when I sort of stumble into this new career of, of being a writer and speaker. Um, so it wasn't, yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, none of it was deliberate. Uh, I have had plans all along and they've never worked out. They've always ended up doing different things, which has been great. I think that's a good metaphor for life. Hmm. And so the, one of the books, you know, since you and I share this common interest in, in AI in particular, uh, you wrote this uh, book about the promise and peril of AI and mm. you did that in 2014 or 15. So we're now several years on. How have you? How do you evaluate what you propose as the promises and perils uh, versus how they have played out today? Well, we're still very much uh, at the early stages. Um, but of course, we always will be. Um, one of the things that people need to bear in mind when they think about AI and indeed pretty much any technology is uh, if it's, driven by software, uh, and most things are these days, then you're on a uh, an exponential growth curve because of Moore's law, uh, which some people say is dead or dying, but it's not true. Um, machines are getting twice as powerful every 18 months, there or thereabouts. That That's true today. It's been true for a long time, uh, since long before Gordon Moore noticed it in 1965. Um, and it's going to be true for quite a long time yet. So we're on this exponential growth curve and on an exponential curve every step is equal to the sum of all the previous steps which means that you're always at the beginning and we are at the beginning of the ai story now there are some very powerful and interesting forms of ai uh, in the world today uh, but it hasn't got very far yet so the, the forms that we see and we all use every day is uh, google search uh, google maps um, fo photo cataloging by facebook and others recommendation services from Amazon and Netflix. And the industry where it's hit hardest, where it's um, disrupted most, is is advertising. So Google and Facebook have stolen a big, big chunk of the advertising industry. Uh, they have pretty much destroyed the business model of newspapers, which is part of the reason for Techlash. Uh, 
newspaper owners and a lot of journalists hate the tech giants because they've taken their business model away. Mm. They'd love to see them broken up. They are very keen to portray them as rival publishers. And I think this is potentially dangerous and I, it seems to me wrong. I mean, I, I think I may be in a minority in this view. It doesn't seem to me that Google and Facebook are publishers. Publishers commission content and they curate content and they uh, they, they have a very close relationship with the content producers. They may employ them or they may be freelancers. Google and Facebook don't do that. They, they create spaces where everybody can chuck content up. Uh, you know, YouTube absorbs hundreds of hours of video a second and, and, and Google is clearly not uh, commissioning or curating that content. So I think it's wrong to think of them as publishers. Um, but I know that will get some hackles raised <laughs> in probably in your audience. Um, so, so Google and Facebook have, have taken over the ad industry, um, and that's that's probably its biggest impact so far. But in doing so, what they've done is they have given us miracles. I think Google search, particularly combined with Wikipedia, is pretty close to omniscience. And Peter Thiel had that famous phrase, uh, we were promised flying cars and all we got was 160 characters uh, of Twitter. But really, if you brought somebody from the Victorian era to today and said, what would, what would impress you most, a flying car or omniscience? And I think they could get their head around a flying car fairly quickly. The idea of omniscience, I think, would be um, really miraculous to them. And it is really miraculous. You know, you and I are old enough to remember the days when a day spent at work, about half of it was spent looking for information. And that information, generally speaking, these days, you can find it with a couple of clicks on a, on a, on a button. Um, so there is that miracle. And <laughs> equally miraculous is the fact that it's free. Uh, and I get this miracle in return for allowing Google to enable Mercedes and Coke to offer me their goods and services. Um, I think that's one of the best deals ever. And I'm always continually staggered by it. So I would argue that uh, the impact of AI so far has been very positive. Now, we can see some really serious potential downsides, and some of them are already starting to bite. Uh, the impact on privacy, uh, the potential harm from bias in the data that is feeding the AIs, uh, the, the problems that can arise from the lack of transparency. Uh, the Chinese social credit system is a warning to us all. You know, that's Orwell's 1984 writ large. Uh, and then further ahead, you know, the possibility of joblessness and the, and the possibility of superintelligence. These have, those two things have enormous potential upsides, but also enormous potential downsides. So there's a lot to play for. But at the moment, um, I think, you know, unless you're a newspaper owner or an ex-newspaper owner, um, it's mostly good. Hmm. Well, it's interesting to have that because it's very much against the run of play, certainly the way the media positions it. And it's good to hear a positive take on it, is, is my opinion. If you, if you look at the spectrum of AI, you said we're at the beginning. Uh, in, in a couple of years' time, uh, how do you see it evolving? And, you know, to what extent we are, are we going to move towards general intelligence and, and a, a more sophisticated type of AI than just a sort of a, a straight algorithm, if you will? Yeah, so... Uh, general intelligence, as in artificial general intelligence and AI, which has all the cognitive abilities of an adult human and then quickly goes on to become a super intelligence, that is a long way off. And uh, we might get into that, but that's that's a long way off. I think a couple of things 
that are going to happen in the next few years of interest. Firstly, there's going to be a, a more hidden development of AI uh, in industry in general. It was an interesting example yesterday. McDonald's spent $300 million uh, buying an Israeli company, which will help them to offer um, recommendations really to, to their customers. So as you enter a, a McDonald's drive through restaurant, uh, it will know obviously know what time of day it is. It'll know um, some things about you. And I dare say that people will either, will either opt in or opt out of letting McDonald's know much about them. But if a, um, somebody arrives mid-afternoon, late afternoon, and orders two um, McDonald's for kids, then you know McDonald's already knows quite a bit about that person. And it will make interesting recommendations to them based on that. So this is the the sort of this is among the first signs of non tech companies starting to use the same giant AI systems that the tech giants are using. And that's going to happen a lot. Uh, result of that is going to be the goods and services that we get and that we get offered will be better tailored to us. They'll be more efficiently produced and probably a good deal cheaper. So I think industry uh, products and services are going to get better and cheaper as a result of this, this dissemination of AI through industry in general. And then there's a couple of things which, we, which will be more visible. One is self-driving vehicles. This is going to be a huge, huge change. When self-driving vehicles are ready for prime time, uh, we don't know how. We don't know when that will be, and we don't know how long it will take before they replace the existing pool of human-driven vehicles. Um, it took in New York City. It took 13 years to swap out horse-drawn vehicles for motor-drawn vehicles, almost entirely. And I wouldn't be surprised if it takes a similar length of time to do that in cities to swap out human-driven cars for self-driven cars. And we should be really keen on this and, and uh, excited about it and looking to hurry it up because around the world every year we kill 1.2 million people and maim another 50 million by running them over. Uh, it's the Road accidents is the primary cause of death for people between 15 and 29 around the world. So the quicker we can get self-driving cars uh established the better but it's a difficult problem um they are the, the people like waymo the, the google spin out uh, gm and their cruise division ford and all the other <clears throat> major motor manufacturers they're working really hard spending an absolute fortune on ironing out the last few wrinkles to enable them to uh, have self-driving cars with no human chaperone in them so you just sit in the back and get driven where you want to go uh there's a saying in engineering that the first 95% of any project takes the first 95% of the time available. The last 5% of the project takes the second 95% of the time available. And that's what's going on right now with, with self-driving vehicles. Now, some people, some very well-informed people say it'll be decades before they're ready for prime time. I think that's um, very unlikely. I think it's going to be somewhere between two to five years when we will see Waymo cars routinely without a human chaperone. And then, 10 to 15 years beyond that, in cities, you probably won't see very many cars with humans driving them. And indeed, it may be illegal to drive for a human to drive a car because we're simply not good enough. So that's going to be a very visible um, and very powerful change. And the other one is digital agents. Um, 
and they are they will be the descendants of Siri and um, Alexa and Cortana and so on. And if you want to see the direction of travel there, it's a good idea to look up Google Duplex. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm sure many of your audience will have will have seen the demo that Google unveiled in uh, June at their their developer conference. Um, in that demo, uh, an AI rings up a hairdresser and makes an appointment. And that's, that sounds very mundane and unimpressive, but actually it involved a conversation with about half a dozen statements on either side. So the AI had to sort of make an opening statement and then respond to the response and respond to the response to the response and so on. Mm. And all through that process, the human hairdresser uh, receptionist didn't realize they were talking to a machine. Now, Google has now, um, is now making that, pro- that service commercially available. It's, it's very restricted. It's very limited. It's buggy. But, of course, it will improve dramatically. And so within five to ten years, we'll have digital assistants that can carry out conversations on our behalf and can do errands for us. And that is going to be an enormous change. We're going to have machines talking to machines all over the place. And it's impossible to know now. Uh, how quickly all the various scenarios that science fiction writers have been speculating about for decades, you know, what, what order they'll happen in and how it will all pan out. The, de- the devil is in the detail. You can see the broad strokes, but the detail of how it will work, we can't know. So those are some things that are going to be really interesting to watch over the next decade or so. What strikes me about the, that series or combination of examples, Callum, is that there's a link between in real life off line and AI. In 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 the case of, of the McDonald's example, you know, you're going in, you're buying a burger and you're going to eat, and AI is playing in the background. In the case of the autonomous car, it's as real as it gets with fumes and all that, or at least maybe hopefully electric. And then in the last case, you're now at home and you're calling somebody to make a reservation. So it, it's of course using tech in the background but it's very much inserted into our daily lives. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, Mark Andreessen, who created Netscape, and then uh, one of the leading tech VC firms, A16Z, famously said that software is eating the world. And then since then, somebody's added the comment that AI is eating software. Whether it's visible or not, AI is going to inflect everything that we buy, everything that we use, everything that we do. Uh, it's going to become as pervasive as electricity, as, uh, as another great figure in the field, um, Andrew Ng, said. Uh, and, and increasingly, you know, we won't really notice it. Just like when electricity first arrived, everybody thought it was a miracle, and now we all take it for granted. And if you turn a switch on and, and the light doesn't turn on you, you get annoyed. That's the only time you notice it. And AI will be like that. It will be everywhere. It will be all influential heavily influential but we won't really notice it all right so then that brings up the question for people in business today if it can be all influential pervasive it seems like that's a lot of choices for a person running a business in that it's impossible to do all things for all people all the time so i mean as in you have to make choice so if you're running a company column how would you start this 
process, you know, let's assuming you're not, you know, a Google or, or an Apple kind of thing, you're running a, 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 a company that makes widgets and, oh, our AI is going to happen. I've just listened to this podcast. I've got to take care of it. What am I going to do? How do you start that journey or how do you think about implementation of AI in your business? Well, if you're inv involved in a, in a large business and you haven't started thinking about this yet, I think you're in a very vulnerable position. But there's an awful lot of people in SMEs who uh, haven't yet started thinking about it, and that's fair enough. Um, the first thing to do is you have to familiarize yourself with what AI is, what it can do, what it's already doing, and uh, the broad strokes of where it's going. Some of the stuff we've been talking about, and there's heaps of information out there about that. So, you know, familiarize yourself uh, and acquire a basic level of not expertise, but uh, understanding of, of what it is and what it can do. Um, then there's a series of things, a series of steps to go through, and these are becoming increasingly well understood. Firstly, you need to kind of set up a horizon scanning process, even if that's only in your own head or your head of, head of yourself and, a, and some colleagues and friends, thinking about and, and scanning the media for how your industry is likely to get disrupted by AI. Um, you won't always get it right, but if you're not looking, then you will definitely miss the trends and the, uh, and the events that happen. Next thing is you need to consider uh, what elements of your business could be enhanced by AI or could be disrupted by AI. And then you need to review the data that you have. And this is perhaps the, the, the first kind of hard technical part, because most of us don't know how to assess data. So you're going to need some data scientists, either in-house or, or, or contracted. So review your data to see what uh, it could do for you. And then it's time to get started and, and um, take some baby steps. You know, don't, don't try to eat the elephant in one mouthful, but uh, go for some low-hanging fruit and, and try some experiments using your data. Using There's a lot of AI tools now which are available free or nearly for free. Um, Google's TensorFlow library of AI tools is um, much of that's available for free. Uh, Microsoft makes a lot available, so does Facebook with Cafe. So that, um, but you probably need, you know, if you're not a technical person, you're going to need help with that as well, either in-house or contracted. Um, but it's certainly, I think, important to start doing this quickly because more and more businesses are going to get disrupted by AI. And if you're not part of that disruption, then you will find yourself disrupted out of business. You wrote about ethics in AI recently uh, on your blog. At what point do you need to bring ethics into the equation as you start on this journey? Yeah, well, the, the thing I wrote on, on my blog, I took some heat for. Uh, it was very unpopular. I think ethics is not the right word for um, dealing with the potential problems of AI. There are big potential problems, and we alluded to some of them earlier, you know, privacy, transparency, bias, uh, and something that I call algocracy, which is um, the, the process by which we increasingly hand off decisions, delegate decisions to machines. Uh, and, you know, we, we don't really know how they make the decisions. It just We just know that they make better decisions than us. So these are all things that we need to think about. And, and you have to do it at the same time as you're starting to develop your processes. They, they, they shouldn't be divorced. But as um, Stuart Russell, one of the leading AI researchers, likes to say, if, if an engineer is building a bridge, they don't build a bridge and then think about the ethics of the bridge, which would be how to stop it falling down and killing people. 
A bridge that falls down is a bridge that's failed. It's just a bad bridge. And an AI system, so as an example, uh, Amazon had an AI which was reviewing CVs. And uh, it was the sort of first stage of a filter for a CV. And lots of companies are doing this. And they discovered that this AI was, was screening out women. And it was perfectly understandable why this was happening. Um, Amazon, like most businesses, has uh, a, a preponderance of male executives for historical reasons, which are not good, but that's the way life is at the moment. And so the algorithm was looking at who has been most successful in, in Amazon so far, and it was mostly men, so it was screening out women at the, at the application stage. And they quickly realized that's a problem. That's not a good thing. We want a more diverse work, workforce. Everybody does. And so they scrapped that system. So you have to bear in mind the potential downsides at the same time as you're, as you're building the system. The two can't be divorced. The reason why I'm uncomfortable with the use of the word ethics, I, I know I'm going to lose this discussion, but <laughs> oh, hell, uh, you know, but part of the joy of being a retired person is you can take the unpopular position. The, the, the two reasons why I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable about it, one is it makes it sound like the AI is an ethical agent, a moral agent, and it's not. You know, AI systems are dumb as a rock. They may be able to play chess better than any human being will ever be able to, but um, they can't do anything else, and they are not conscious, so they're not moral agents, and it's slightly dangerous if we anthropomorphize them too much. That's, that's one reason. The other is that um, when discussions about what to do and what not to do is cast, are cast as ethical, two things happen. Firstly, you never reach agreement. Because for 3,000 years, we've been discussing what is the best way to live. We've been discussing moral systems. And we are further from agreement than we were under the Greeks. Um, and secondly, conversations get very heated. If you disagree with me over an ethical issue, you're not just mistaken or you're not just sub-optimizing the outcome. You're actually wrong. And you're probably a bad person. So I think it's a good idea to tone down the heat in the discussion uh, and that's, that's why I would prefer people to talk about AI safety or better and worse AI rather than ethical AI. Hmm. But I'm going to lose that argument. <laughs> well, good for you for standing out there, um, Callum. So um, in the last few minutes we have, um, you, you wrote these, you collected these stories from 2045. And I got a chance to listen a little bit to you as you spoke at that conference how are you to describe the key message from this collection? So this is what I think is where I spend most of my time. It's the most important message I'd like to convey to people. Uh, automation, thanks to artificial intelligence, uh, is, is increasingly cognitive automation rather than mechanization, which we've had in the past. In the past, automation took over muscle jobs, which means that horses no longer have an economic role. In the future, um, AI will take over cognitive work, the work of people in shops and in uh, law firms and uh, you know, pretty much every area. And in the, f in the coming few years, that's going to mean people are going to have to get used to changing their jobs quite frequently as AI takes over more and more tasks within jobs and in, then indeed whole jobs. But there are plenty of jobs left for humans because there's plenty of things that machines can't do yet. And that's going to be true for a while. So in the next few years and decades, we're going to have a lot of job churn, but we're not going to have, I don't think, um, a lot of technological unemployment. But there's likely to come a point, and it might take 20 years, it might take 30 years, when machines can do most of the things that we can do for money. 
it won't make us irrelevant. It won't um, mean humans are sort of obsolete uh, because we are conscious. We appreciate the universe. Machines aren't um, yet, and they won't be for a long time. Um, but it might be that we can't earn money. And then we have a, an interesting situation. How do, we, so how do we deal with that? So the first message is technological unemployment is possible. It's not, um, it's not true necessarily. We don't know for sure to argue that you know, un- automation hasn't caused unemployment in the past, therefore it can't in the future. So that's the first message. The second message is you can't just wave a magic wand and say, all right, well, if we get technological unemployment, we'll introduce universal basic income and that will solve everything. That's magical thinking. Um, universal basic income <clears throat> is either too low as a, an amount of money to be any use, and almost all of the experiments that have been half tried with it so far, the amount has been too low, or it's too expensive. Um, if you you know tax rich people enough to pay for a decent level of basic income, then the, the, the rich people will run away to the Cayman Islands or somewhere. Um, or m- most often it's both. It's both too low and uh, too expensive. So something else has to happen for a transfer of income and wealth to be possible. And I think that the other thing that needs to happen is you have to get to the economy of abundance in which the the price or the cost of all the goods and services that you need in order to frankly be rich, because, you know, that's what we want. We want everybody all around the world to be rich. Actually, every, you know, the great majority of people in the world now are rich by the standards of 200 years ago, but we want them to be a lot richer. We want everybody to be as rich as a middle class American is today. And the economy of abundance, I think, is possible, and probably we don't have time to go into how that might happen, um, but we don't know that it's possible for sure. But I think that has to happen in order for uh, a, 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 an economic transfer to happen, which will make it possible to be successful in a, in a society of technological unemployment. Well, so to, your, the, yeah, to your point of the, the, the rich going to the Cayman Islands, the idea of, of that abundance presumably has to be seated in people with power giving over some of their wealth to the extent that you see many people who prefer to accumulate at the at the top end of the spectrum and while of course many of them decide to give back thanks to great tax breaks you know there's there seems to be today anyway uh, a far greater divide uh, between the very rich and the very poor. And that divide seems to be getting greater. And that seems to be part of the system we have today. So how do we change that system? So I don't think that uh, abundance requires a change of mindset on behalf of rich people. If abundance is going to happen, it will probably happen just through simple economic development. Um, the use of AI will make the production of all goods and services much, much more efficient. We'll, it will discover lots of new materials to make the raw materials cheaper, and the processes will be much more efficient. Energy is going to get much, much cheaper. Uh, the cost of solar cells is on an exponentially declining cost curve. They're not competitive with digging up dead dinosaurs yet, but they will be. Um, it may take 20 or 30 years, but um, and electricity will be close to free at some point. So... Um, if abundance is going to happen, it will probably just arrive anyway. Uh, the worry is that people don't believe it's coming at the time when they do believe that technological unemployment's coming, and we get a panic, and panics can be very dangerous. So I think that's that is the thing that keeps me up at night. Mm. The um, the point about 
the rich getting richer and so on. Firstly, um, the robber barons of the early 1900s, uh, Andrew Carnegie and Stanford, Leland and so on, um, was it Leland Stanford? They, they acquired their wealth ruthlessly, uh, trampled on thousands of people, and then gave it away at the end of their lives. The current tech giants, um, you might say they're ruthless. Personally, I'm not quite so sure that's true. But they seem to be giving it away much younger. Um, you know, Gates is trying to give away half of his money when he's in middle youth. Uh, admittedly, he's not succeeding. He's still very rich. But he is giving away a lot of money. And he's not alone. There's a lot of them are, are doing that. And it doesn't seem to me that the, the leaders of the tech giants are trying to accumulate wealth for its own sake. It seems to me that they are interested in making the future hurry up. Um, but also, we have this sort of star system in, uh, now in, in business, in, in the same way we had it in football, where a small number of people make astonishingly disproportionate returns um, for, their, for their talent or their luck. But elsewhere in the economy, if you strip out that, that top layer, uh, inequality is much less of a problem than people think. Uh, and it's certainly not high by historical standards. Um, so I, I don't think inequality is such a problem, and I certainly don't think that the um, the, the super wealthy, the, the the tech tech giant leaders and so on, are the problem. Uh, you know, I think if we're going to get abundance, it will happen anyway. Uh, we need to know whether that's going to happen because if not, then we need a plan B, and I don't think anybody's come up with a plan B yet. Well, brilliant, Callum. You have uh, achieved plenty of provocation. provocation. And if that's a word, <laughs> and um, it's been great. So anyone who'd like to comment or send in some questions for you, please do. You can send it to my uh, email and minterdial at gmail, and I will forward along either audio or other. <clears throat> Excuse me. So how can someone best uh, contact you, connect with you, and uh, get your books, Callum? Well, the books are all on Amazon. Um, increasingly, I don't really use any other channels. Amazon is such a powerful uh, channel for book sales. So, um, and, and I'm quite easy to find online because my name is uh, unusual, spelled C-H-A-C-E. Um, best way to sort of... Chase you down. <laughs> yeah, the best way to interact with me is, is probably on Twitter. I'm um, a complete addict to Twitter. I love it. So I'm at C.C. Callum, C-C-C-A-L-U-M. Um, uh, I don't use Facebook at all and I have a blog which is www.pandoras-brain.com Brilliant. Looking forward to Pandora's Brain number two. Callum, thanks for coming on the show. Carry on viewing the future for us and look forward to keeping up with you. Thanks, Minter. It's been fun. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com if you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Anticipating a thrill of your age.
Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you 
and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.